Hi, Michael. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, Mamon, to yourself. Yeah, I'm all right. Um, where are you? Where are you at the moment? I'm in my office, um, which is a well, in my garden at home. I a number of years ago decided to build an office there, so I, I literally do work from home. Okay, so you, are you which part of the UK are you in there at the moment? Sorry, Devon. Ah, oh, you're in Devon. Yeah, that's where I live. Oh, and yeah. you drink cider from? I'd, I'd rather not with most of it, actually, Monty. Um, a lot of it is is so rustic. If it was if it was a wine, it would be condemned. You know, it's got sort of twigs and bits of beak in it. Still, it's really very unpleasant. So I don't drink much cider. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit Neolithic down there. Um, and I'm I'm joking. No, no, it's it's you're actually you're pretty accurate. You're pretty on the ball there, Monty. It can be a bit. Mm. All right, should we start then? Ready to rock and roll? Yeah, sure. Whenever you want. Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is... I was going to call myself Michael Garner. Well, you can pretend to be me if you like. Um, I don't think it'll get you very far, but... <laughs> you had that effect on me. Um, that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Hello, this is the Italian wine. <laughs> done it again. You're corpsing, Monty, already. Yeah, I was. I was in the Brunello Vineyards this morning, and it was the beautiful light and wind and all the rest of it, seeing people, people snipping grapes. Uh, now the hard work begins. I'm me actually being able to get more than four words together out at the same time. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Walden. My guest today is Michael Garner. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Mark, how would you describe yourself? I first met you, um, came across you in book form when I bought your um, the book that you wrote, Tar and Roses on Barolo, um, with Paul Merritt um, all those years ago in the early 1990s. Yeah, published in 1990, in fact, yeah. Uh, and, we, and I read that book because I was working in a shop at a time in London with a, a chap called Chris Donaldson who was studying for his Master of Wine, and he recommended that book, and he did pass his MW um, first time round. Um, and I think it was yeah, well, certainly one of the first wine books I ever read. It was a great read. Really? Yeah, it was, honestly. honestly I'm, wow. I've got, I've got it in my... I've got it on my desk. Have you really? Yeah, hardback. And uh, you with... Uh, it's worth a lot of money, apparently, on whatever it's called, on um, Amazon or eBay or whatever. Right. Well, that was the end of the podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. That's nice to speak to you, as always, Monty. Yeah. Um, anyway, you were, that was how I came across you. So why, um, why the fascination uh, with Piemonte? And also, how did you get into wine in the first place? Because you were, apart from being a writer, you also... Um, have a small wine merchant. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, not it's not what, more of an agent sort of style broker. We just sell um, the wine from a few wineries in the UK on an ex-seller basis. I suppose that's more kind of brokerage agent time work than being a, a, a wine merchant as such. Although, what is the distinction? I'm not too sure. Yeah, I call myself a wine merchant. Why not? Um, how did I get into the wine trade? Totally by accident, Monty. Um, I was between uh, between teaching jobs. I used to teach and um, working in a bar and wasn't really enjoying it. And via a friend I knew, I got um, what I thought at the time was going to be a temporary job as a cellar boy in odd bins. And um, anyway, to cut a long story short, we... Um, 
so, uh, soon after that, learned that my wife was pregnant. And um, I thought I'd better start trying to be a bit more of a serious human being and um, make sure that I could look after uh, my wife and um, the beginnings of a family. So I, I needed to stick at something. I stuck at wine. So that's how I got into the wine trade. Where, where were you based at the time? Were you based in the UK? Yes, yes. I was, uh, I was in the, the beautiful city of Bath, if you remember Bath near Bristol. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful Roman city. Uh, well, with not Roman city, but it has a Roman parts to it, as you probably know. Really beautiful. I, I just moved there. And, um, yeah, I was between teaching jobs, and um, this job came up in, uh, in Odbins as a cellar boy. So, yeah, I went for it. I needed a job at the time. So I stuck with it, and, uh, you know, there you go. Work, worked for Odbins for a number of years, and uh, just kind of worked my way through the wine trade to where I am at the moment. Um, oh, my gosh, there's something about Odbins, because we've got, we got an international audience. A lot of them won't know what Odbins uh, is or was. Oh, right, fair enough. Okay. It was a sort of a cutting-edge um, wine uh, chain of wine shops in the United Kingdom, which um, introduced many wines to the UK, in terms, especially Australia and Californian wines and New Zealand wines, are very sort of avant-garde, as well as some of the classics. Um, and you, so what was your role? Yeah, yeah, I, I got a, a job in a, in a, in a, the Bath Oddbins, Bath branch of Oddbins, so just shifting cases around the cellar. And as you rightly say, it was a very much a, a, a cutting edge outfit at the time, uh, bringing wines into the UK that no one had ever heard of. So it was a very exciting time in the trade because it was kind of breaking the mould before that. The wine trade was a very, very traditional and conservative business. To some extent, it still is as well. But Oddbins, I think, were the first people to sort of take a wholly new and, and much more dynamic approach to uh, to the wine business. And um, I know at the time that it's sort of spawned a, a lot of people who've gone on to sort of bigger things in the wine trade. Um, I think of perhaps, you know, Andrew Shaw maybe, who's the buying director for, um, who I know you know Andrew, buying director for whatever they're called. I can't remember the name of the company. Never mind, I'm sure it'll come to you or me or someone at some stage. And various other people as well who did uh, their apprenticeship in the trade in odd bins, shall we say. Bibendum. Bibendum. That's where Andrew works for. So, yeah, a number of people. It was was a a sort of proving ground for a number of people, yeah. So at the moment, um, obviously that was quite a long time ago, so you worked in that shop, you got the wine bug. How long did it take you to establish your own oh. business in the wine trade? How many years did that take? Blimey. Um, that probably took 20 years um, to before I actually had my own company, yes. Um, but in the meantime, there was something much more important happening um, in my life, which, you know, I, I, I'd fathered three sons by then, and um, they were and are remain the centre of my world. Um, so I kind of put uh, my own dreams on uh, on a back burner, if you like, and just focused on making sure I could house, clothe, and feed my family. That was my first priority. So how did you do that, though? Well, by sort of working for larger companies who paid me better salary. Wine companies or other companies? No, wine companies, always within the wine trade, yeah, because um, it would have been – perhaps folly to have tried to jump ship, um, you know, with uh, the responsibilities that I had. 
if you're a younger member of the wine trade or sends you an email or knocks on your door and says, I want to get into the wine trade, what's the best way of doing it? What would your answer be? Seeing as you stumbled in there by accident almost, a little bit like me. Pass, I guess. Um, I, I wouldn't know. Um, it's not necessarily a... Someone came up to me, how do I get a start in the wine trade? I, I'd probably suggest go and look for something else. <laughs> um, it's a great trade, but I think... No, I, I, I can't answer that. I really can't. I wouldn't know how to advise someone it because, you know, if you're talking about someone's kind of life and dreams, um, the last thing I'd want to do is ruin them. Okay. I was going to say, I would, I would say go and get a job on a vineyard, learn how it's made first, and then get yourself a job in a, I don't know, in an importer or a wine shop or a wine bar or something like that so you can actually taste wines from other... Yeah, sure. Okay, I, I can appreciate that, Monty, but that's not an opportunity that's open to everybody, is it? I got I got a job sort of, you know, at the lowest level of the wine trade. And I, I would say if someone can afford to, you know, do that, being a, a, if someone is in a fortunate enough position to be able to do that, to be able to just, you know, dedicate their life to working in a vineyard and working their way through the wine trade, um, that that's wonderful. Then that's probably the best way of doing it. But it's I don't think those are opportunities open to everybody. So there you go. Yeah. So, were you? What was your? Were you the for the companies that you worked for? Were you? Um, were you the buyer? Were you the negotiator? Were you? Uh, what, what was your exact role in these wine companies? Oh right, yeah, a bit of everything. Um, I got a, a kind of lucky break. My lucky break was, I think, that was sort of in the about. I'm not sure how long I'd been in the wine trade. Probably about four or five years. But I joined a company that was called Grierson Blumenthal which was the wine and spirits arm of the uh, Forte Empire, so the Rocco Forte. And at the time, within Gris and Blumenthal, there was a division called Italian Wine Agencies, which was headed up by a wonderful guy, a real character called Richard Hobson, a master of wine who sadly died rather young. He was at the time branching out and forming other divisions like French wine agencies and Hispanic wine agencies, and because by then I'd already sort of started to focus on Italian wine, he brought me in and I started really running Italian wine agencies for him. And I suppose now we're looking at kind of the mid-80s. So if you'd like me to continue with my sort of own personal history in the trade, I worked for them for a number of years until um, Trust House Forte was sort of broken up and sold off to uh, its various divisions. I think the wine arm, which I left when the uh, breakup took place, went on to become Matthew Clark, if I'm not much mistaken. And some other people went off to other companies as well. I then worked for a number of years through my, my other great mentor in the wine trade, which is a guy called Renato Trestini, who you may have heard about. Sadly, he died a few years ago as well. And he gave me free reign to sort of do what I want, um, which is great fun. So I worked for, there for a couple of years, well, probably more actually, three or four years, until we were bought up by another company. I can't remember the name of them either. Well, I stayed for a few more years and then thought, sod this, I'm going to do it on my own, you know. So uh, with my uh, my co-author, Paul Merritt. But were your responsibilities also going to um, Italy to um, buy wine and to source wine, to build relationships. Yeah, yeah, very much uh, 
Yes, the whole the whole package really, sort of sourcing and selling. Yeah, um, very much so. Um, I've always kind of felt that you need a, a thorough grounding in the trade to be uh, any good at it. So not only did was I buying and selling wine and talking about it and drinking it, but I also taught for a number of years for the WSET. I used to uh, teach diploma to people um, on Italian wine. So I've always thought that they'll kind of, to understand the trade properly, you've got to become immersed in all aspects of the business. So, you know, I, I suppose I've been very lucky that I've kind of done every, you know, most most um, most things. You know, I've made a bit of wine and stuff like that as well because, you know, you really, to get to the bottom of a wine, you need to get, get to know the grapes and the vineyards and the, the people, the whole story. I mean, do you think from those days then and what's going on today, do you think we're talking about the wine trade here, not consumers, but wine trade people in the United Kingdom, which obviously is still a, an important market for, for Italy, how do you see the level of knowledge uh, amongst the professional elite um, in in the UK now compared to then? Was it a little bit more sort of fun and a little bit less precise in those days compared to now? Has the fun gone out of it? Certainly. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that. It's still, you know, you, you're in the wine trade as well, Monty. You know what a, a, a fun trade it can be still be um and 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 is not just can be um it was back in those days back sort of when i was kind of growing up in the wine trade which i suppose is the 1980s um italy got incredibly short shrift it was the butt of the it was the joke area of the of the wine trade people just thought italian wine was you know on a, a lower level, and it was dismissed as, you know, a commodity product that was bought and sold on price, and quality wasn't really part of the equation. And so the the people's understanding of Italian wine was at an all-time low within the trade. So, um, as I said, I think that the, Brit- the British trade in particular always was fairly insular and conservative that has broken down to some extent now and and thank god for it it certainly needed to so what changed i mean you know i i, I totally agree with what you're saying I and mean, in those days i was a little bit after you you know this obsession with bordeaux and also to burgundy um to, to a certain extent um and obviously italy being a, a behemoth got pretty short shrift um a because it was maybe seen as inconsistent um but also lacking seriousness you know there weren't those chateaux and petruses that you could names that you could reel off from italy but that's changed hasn't it and how has how is how have you seen that um well I, i think those great names were always there um it's just that people were Blinkered, um, as you say, they had an obsession with uh, with French wines, and I, I think you know the gradual acceptance of, for example, Australian wine um, made a big difference. People began, if somewhat grudgingly, to admit that uh, there were other there were people other than the French who could make good wine, um, and. Even back then, in the 70s, there were great names in wine. And Piero Pan made his first crew in 1971, his first crew Suave, Calvarino. Eva, I remember one of the biggest memories of my wine life was in the early 1980s. And it's what really turned me on to Italian wine. So you've got a scoop here, Monty. Um, I remember being in the cellars, not the current cellars, but the old cellars uh, of Giovanni Conterno. 
uh, Roberto's dad. I remember tasting 10-year-old Monfortino from the barrel. This was in the early 80s. and being blown away by how good it was. It was extraordinary. And yet, you know, you tried to tell some of the, uh, you know, the wine establishment in the sort of the British wine trade establishment about some of these wines, and they just dismissed you out of out of hand. Um, so, you know, Italian wine, I'm, I'm grateful for sort of giving me a crusade because I've always had a kind of an evangelical side to my nature, which um, the uh, Italian one. You like supporting, it's kind of like the underdog, I think, rather than evangelical. You you have a, you have a real sense of fairness. Um, that, you know, you are, you are fair. You like the idea of fairness. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course I do. But um, I don't know. Um, yeah, if you, if you see it that way, you're probably a, a better judge of that than I am, Monty, because, you know, um, I, I always thought I had an evangelical side, but perhaps I don't. But in, in your view, it wasn't fair that these, albeit good wines from, say, Bordeaux, um, we're getting all the all the all the applause, and these as good, if not even better, wines from, for example, Piemonte, as you cited, uh, were really being ignored. So, but apart from your your indignation about that, that's very true, very true. But it also showed you there were <laughs> there were niches to explore, uh, which is what you and your business partner, then business partner Paul Merritt, did um, by by publicising. Um, it wasn't your book on Barolo Tarum Roses wasn't just a book about the region. It was basically a book about saying this is an exceptional region and people should wake up um, because it's because it's not the only great region in in uh, Piemonte or in Italy. That was the message I certainly got from that book when I read it. I mean, I was I was so into Bordeaux then. I'd, I'd learned everything I had by living in Bordeaux and all the rest. It was very Bordeaux centric, and that book showed me. Um, mm-hmm. There is another side, not just another side, but many, many other sides um, to the wine industry. And of course, you say the Australian um, tsunami and the, the New Zealand arrival, the California, and all the rest of it. It suddenly became exciting in the 1990s. Yeah, and, and it, what was exciting again, I repeat, was was it was excitement of the old classics that had been ignored that they could then come to the fore um, uh, as they hadn't done before. And you were a part of that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's as may be. But um, I think it's just really the, the wine trade growing up, Monty, as much as anything else, you know, and becoming a little less insular um, and becoming a little more open-minded. Yeah, um, and it needs people to sort of... With consumers as well. Oh, definitely, definitely, absolutely, yeah. Um, because wine for as a... As an everyday drink for people in the UK is uh, is something over the last uh, just after the last couple of decades, isn't it? Really, for you know the normal guy in the street. Um, when I was young, certainly I I never drank wine at all. Maybe once a year, and you know at Christmas or my father's birthday or something. I didn't know what wine was really until you know my uh, early twenties. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of Italy, when obviously the changes that gone on over the last 20 years these huge changes what are your favorite areas or grape varieties or even wine styles now you know if if we could give you a free ticket to go across italy all expenses paid you know where would you be heading to and why um personal preference you mean are you asking me as a as a consumer rather than Anything else there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? Oh, okay. The man in the street, not a- the man in the street. Okay. Um, my, well, my my current favourite area, and it's um, it's great that even at my sort of venerable old age, I can still 
sort of feel stirred as much as I feel stirred at the moment is certainly the wines of the Alto Adige. I used to be involved commercially with um, the Alto Adige in the mid-80s when I was working with Richard Hobson. Uh, and back then, the wines were kind of mainly bulk wines, a lot of red from Schiava sent up to sort of Austria and Germany, and everything was sort of, you know, pretty much a commodity product. And the way that region has turned itself around in less than 30 years and is now clearly the most exciting region in Italy, Europe, and possibly the world for white wines, because I think that they're that good. Um, so there, uh, yeah, the, the white wines of the Alto Adige are just absolutely out this world these, these days. Um, I'm still a huge fan of Valpolicella. A really good Valpolicella for me is one of the most underrated red wines out there. And, you know, depending on the size of the check you gave me, I'd go and explore somewhere else as well. There are still, uh, do you know, I've never been to Sardinia. I'd love to go to Sardinia. Um, but I've been to all the other wine-producing regions, I think. And um, they all have something there, Monty. You know it yourself that they've. each region has, you know, a, a, a tiny sort of area making brilliant wines from some unheard-of great variety. And that's the beauty of Italy. You can still go over there and discover that sort of thing. And these days, thankfully, there's a, a receptive enough audience out there to uh, enable you to indulge yourself and uh, and also, you know, uh, allow them sort of access to uh, some of Italy's great enological treasures. And it is a, still a treasure chest, and it's still only partly um, partly explored. Am I mixing my metaphors there? But uh, there you go. What are the? Um, do you see any sort of key trends in Italian wine? Is, it, is it, uh, in terms of either in terms of winemaking or the rise of the uh, previously unheard of native Italian grape varieties? What is what is what is exciting right now? Going back to that sort of earlier point about you know what what's changed, I, I think what I have noticed is that the um, Italians are perhaps making wines more for the sheer pleasure of making it rather than making it for someone else if you like they are looking at their own great varieties their own methods and thinking well yeah using these methods we can get the most out of what we have the raw materials that we have they've reevaluated those raw materials and are now getting the best results out of them um which they didn't for a long time you know um to be successful you had to make chardonnay or cabernet or something or or syrah um and finally you know people woke up to the idea that nebbiolo and sangiovese were great great varieties um as they are there's no question of it but you've noticed as uh, as, as i have monty that the the real the really interesting aspect of italian wines at the moment i think is is, is in white wines Angelo Gaia said about 10 years ago, didn't he, that the uh, future of Italian wine was white. <laughs> and people are still quite shocked by that. Um, but, you know, he was a, he's quite a visionary, Angelo Gaia, isn't he? I think there's a lot of truth in that. Are there any um, lesser-known grape varieties uh, that you think are waiting to be discovered still by the by the wine trade? Not necessarily in, in the UK, but in general. Any Any hidden gems that you... Every time you taste that particular variety, you think, oh, God, this is so underrated. I wish more people knew about it. 
Sure. No, that's wow. Again, the world's your oyster, there, Mister Mister Walden. Um, so many, so many. Um, Grignolino. How good is Grignolino when it's uh, when it's on form? Same thing about Fraser. Um, and that's just Piemonte. Um, back to the Alto Adige. Silvana. Silvana is so good when it's um, when it's made well. You know, at altitude, up in the Valley Zarco. I've tasted some Silvanas from up there that are just breathtaking so yeah there are all sorts that's just you know two regions Corvino's capable of making great stuff so is so is Verdicchio um any but those are quite well known already you're talking about the more obscure ones Grignolino certainly Silvana stuff like Pinot Bianco how good is Pinot Bianco well made yeah yeah, I agree yeah it's very refreshing and uh Sort of, uh, and, and it's gluggable and interesting, even though it hasn't got a huge amount of flavour. Um, it, it depends, you know, their flavour. You know, um, how essential is flavour? I, I, I tend to like wines that are sort of subtle and graceful and match well with food. And a lot of flavour in a wine doesn't always lend itself to that use. Just a thought for you to mull over. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, what was thinking when you said that. In, in your in your sort of top areas, I mean, obviously Alto Adige is is well known as well known for its whites as it is for its reds, and then obviously Verdicchio is a is a is a is a white, and you've obviously talked about it in Suave as well. Yeah, I love Suave. Um, they've done a huge amount of work understanding their terroir and and really getting those wines you know into sort of first class um, trajectory. In terms of in terms of your work um, as a journalist, mm-hmm. um, you write for Decanter, many other uh, other publications. Um, and um, do you see any trends journalistically or pressure from editors um, or suggestions from editors regarding Italy? And what kind of assignments do you do you like getting and what kind of assignments don't you like getting? <laughs> uh, well, um, I'm in the fortunate position as a freelance journalist where, you know, I can be fairly sort of choosy about what assignments I take on. And... The assignments that I actually follow through are usually ones that I've suggested myself because people say, well, what would you like to write about? And I'd like to write about that, please, which is great because it, um, it allows me sort of free reign. I don't think I'm the right person to ask, to be honest, because um, I, I um, maybe can you sort of try and tease a bit more out of me by i mean okay so you know if, if you know we, we got we win t- two tickets to Italy tomorrow. Uh, for a week or, or, or 10 days, uh, all expenses paid, and I'm going to let you choose the itinerary. Where would your, uh, outside of Piemonte, where would your first stops be, um, not just for the wine and the food, but just for the general, just the whole thing, not just wine-related? Not just wine-related? Oh, golly. Um... Yeah, I mean, just knowing that you've got great wine, lovely food, lovely landscape, everything that you would want um, to, to relax um, whilst enjoying the fruits of the knowledge of your of your trade uh-huh um verona is always a big choice uh for me i love verona um there are certain places that i would always go back to there one of my favorite restaurants is um up in valpolicella you possibly know it it's uh if you know the uh, nagra valley little village up in the nagra valley called torbe there's a restaurant there called 
Trattoria Caprini at Torbay. It's just one of my favourite places to be. Um, it's a wholly unpretentious restaurant. It's very much cucina casalinga. They make their own pasta, um, which is just absolutely glorious pasta. They make it fresh every day. And the food is wholly uncomplicated. For a starter, you'll get, you know, um, something like a sorpresa with homemade giardiniera. And what better starter is than that? Followed by a plate of glorious pasta with, you know, a very sort of traditional meat sauce. Nothing complicated, nothing particularly uh, sophisticated about it. But the... um, The icing on this particular cake is that they have a great wine list and you can drink some wonderful Valpolicella up there from smaller growers who are making really good stuff. I love that place. And while we're in Verona, I'd probably take you to um, meet, uh, do you know Giovanni Edarle? He's a guy with a a small winery and um, a little forestiera up on the hill around Torricella overlooking Verona, overlooking the Central Storico there. And that's, I think it's on the hill between Quinzano and Aveza. And he's right on the limits of the Valpolicella denomination, makes glorious Valpolicella up there. Um, You can stay there. It's where I always stay when I go to Vinitaly. And it's got the most amazing view down over the hillside overlooking the central historical of Verona. So there's something about Verona that really captures my imagination, both as a place. I love the wines there, obviously, and there's some great places to eat there. So we'd certainly stop there. Um, Amaroni. How do you get on with uh, Amaroni? How do I get on with Amaroni? Well, I wrote a book about it. It's... I think the the best description I heard of Amaroni was by the uh, the, the the venerable. He's even older than I am, um, but he's uh, he's also much smarter and much wealthier. Uh, Sandro Boschini of Marzi. He he reckons Amarone is a niche wine, and he's hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's become a huge commercial success. It's produced now in vast quantities compared with what it used to be uh, made. And yet at the same time, you know, its very production method would work against it being a wine that is available in large quantities. So it's a really, it's an unusual wine uh, and that has all sorts of repercussions and statements to make about, you know, what is wine and how it's made and what it's made for. On a more personal level, I'd sooner drink a good Valpolicella any day, any day, really. Amarone, it's a really fascinating wine, but it's something that personally I would sort of only drink a few times a year. And then, you know, what circumstances would I drink it in? That's the other thing about it. It's so difficult to match with food. When there are a few classic dishes, obviously like um, risotto alla marone or or the classic one of pastizzada, which is cooked with amarone or brasato alla marone, obviously, as that as well. But I, I like amarone best if um, if I've had a, a sort of a... If I've eaten a, you know, a hearty lunch, and in the evening, well, I might be a bit peckish, but I don't want to eat a lot. I'll just have some crackers and cheese. That's when Amaroni comes into its into its own. It's a, a wonderful wine with cheese, um, but with most other foods, it's just too big and too uh, too richly flavoured. So I I see it as very much a niche wine. It's a really interesting wine made in a completely uh, you know unique way, but it is a wine that 
is perhaps at its best if viewed as a niche wine. Valpolicella is a different story. As I said, one of the world's great and most un- underestimated red wines. What about um, Suave? When obviously, that's a big region, a big production and a complicated um, production area. Are there particular styles of Suaves, either from altitude or from soil types, that you particularly like? Or is it still, for you, the most important stylistic driver is the producer, him, him or herself? I think, yeah. Um, that's it's a, uh, yeah, a really perceptive question. I mean, obviously, the sort of best wines come from the best producers, and hopefully when they have uh, the right sort of vineyards, it's, uh, it's, it takes you towards the kind of... Uh, you know, the apogee of the, the, the denomination. Suave, when it's good, is is so good. Um, you think of something like Gini Salvarenza. That's one particular style that I think it, it illustrates one particular um, side of Suave, and it's a side that perhaps people aren't quite so, so familiar with. I It can be a, a, a wine that ages wonderfully, um, in in bottle and just gets better and better and i don't know if you've been lucky enough to taste sort of older vintages with genie but even the basic wine can last for up to 20 years you know and and indeed improve over a long period so that's one side the perhaps the less well-known side of suave but i also love the 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 the, the sort of the simpler styles the less complicated styles if you like they're all about kind of freshness and elegance and freshness and elegance is you know what italy uh italy does best but better than everyone else in my view and those are the two um qualities that i perhaps appreciate more in wine than uh, than any others so i know that um one of the you obviously travel a lot and um you're always a busy, busy, busy lad, you know, judging and writing and all the rest of it. Uh, your, your hinterland, if I got you correct, you are a lifelong supporter of Manchester United Football Club. And the final question today, who is your favourite Manchester United player of all time and why? Okay, my favourite, that's a really easy one. Um, bear in mind that I've been very lucky. Um, I first went to Old Trafford in 1961. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Isn't it? Golly, that's a long time ago, nearly 60 years ago. Um, so I've seen some of the greats that I saw best, um, Charlton, obviously, and more recently players like Ronaldo. My favourite ever Manchester United player is Eric Cantona merely because he played with such swagger. Um, he was a flawed genius, and that was always close to my heart. And I think geniuses should have a flaw. Um, no one achieves perfection. Um, but he came very close to it on the pitch. He was majestic. And what I particularly admired about him was that the effect he had on his teammates. In four of the five seasons that he was at Old Trafford, we won the league. The only reason we didn't in the other season was because he was missing um, for most of it after being suspended for his karate kick. So he had this amazing ability to make the team gel 
and um, the younger players around him would he'd show faith in them and they'd respond in kind by sort of playing out of their skins and um, the effect he had on players like David Beckham and Paul Scholes I think um, you know you'd be uh, unwise to underestimate the effect that playing with alongside Eric Cantona had on great players like that so no hesitation there Eric's the man was the man for me okay uh, no no hesitation at all there None, none whatsoever, no. I mean, there are other great players. I've mentioned some of them. Uh, I'd sort of throw in a mention for Roy Keane while I was there. Um, not always the most popular <laughs> guy around, not always the most subtle either, but he was uh, a player to be reckoned with. And surprisingly, as a footballer per se, underrated because he was better known for sort of um, other aspects of his um, footballing career. But he was um, a player that was very underestimated as well. But Eric Cantona is, is the one that I would keep with me. Thanks, Michael. I just want to say thanks, Michael, Michael Garner, for um, taking us on a little tour um, around not just the inner workings of the UK wine trade, but also um, around some of his favourite spots in Italy. And um, thanks for coming on the Italian Wine Podcast and sharing your wealth of knowledge. Um, we've only tapped into a tiny part of that, so we may have to get you back again at some stage, okay? You all right for that, Michael? Yeah, no problem, Monty. Always a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. I hope to see you again before too long. Bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin. Cin cin.